Living the Dream acknowledges the traditional owners of the land it is recorded on, especially the Jagera and Turrbal peoples, elders past, present and future, and their continuing struggles for justice and self-determination. Podcast. Living the Dream is an irregularly published anti-capitalist podcast from Brisbane. Hello. Welcome to the Living the Dream podcast. We have been... It's been a while. Uh, We meant to record this quite some time ago, and it didn't quite get there, but we're here now. We're ready. I'm joined tonight, as always, by the famous, infamous Dr. David Eden. Hey, how's things? How are you? I'm good. How are you, John? I'm good. I'm good. I'm looking forward to finally giving this content to our beloved listenership and families. Yeah. Post-election, huh? That's what we're talking about tonight, isn't it? So Maybe, if we have yeah, to. I think, I think so. Well, it, d- it depends how you talk about it, right? Like, yeah. Um, obviously, you know, we're not delivering a searing, fresh hot take here. Some time has gone past. Mm. And I'm a little like, I, I must admit with... Um, election commentary there's a kind of approach where you know they kind of you, you take something which i guess is a really concrete measurable thing people mm. have voted so they pick these series of options and i'm quite impressed with how granular that that can get you know you have all these you know animated graphics on abc websites where you can drill down to how the swing and went in each booth yeah so there's that then people like pick some kind of sociological phenomena level of income level mm-hmm. of religion and then they kind of try to read the first one off the second one and yep. look i often find that kind of bullshit at some level you know i think yep. it's interesting like it's kind of a really positivist approach if i'm getting that word right where you go mm. here's two measurable observable things i can read a causality between them though i think kind of australian marxism probably suffers from that problem too where you think you can go oh this person is a worker in inverted commas therefore i assume they have that politics and equally mm. they go this politics is not workers politics therefore can i assume those people are not and does that make sense at some level yes yeah i mean there's a weird kind of uh, like you said a, a reading on of people of like if someone's a, a worker then they have um and they should vote in a particular way and i mean of course that comes through particularly when you look at the vote in queensland where we've seen you know that it's all been about the workers and that you know it was all about jobs and it was all about adani became like this <laughs> vector of people's concern about about their work about their about their um futures so i think that it was a really problematic way of and i think that that's really problematic i think we need to talk about that yeah, cool. I guess because I guess my first kind of thinking about this is that this kind of approach to understanding, say, uh, an observable behaviour, mm. really doesn't allow any ability to think about you know the different concepts we might know as like ideology or subjectivity or something like that. I think yeah. you know a key part mm. of any kind of genuine radical approach understands that in a definite society, the social relations that constitute that society actually lead to the production of ideas that obscure the functioning of that society to the people who exist within it. Now, you you know, I think that's a very, like, I would say, like a bargain basement kind of definition of ideology. And obviously a lot of Mm. ink has been spilt in the battle over defining what ideology is. Um, Mm. 
and you can read it in lots of different ways and, and lots of different implica- implications. But I think mm. that's kind of really crucial to understand that, you know, people always already exist in an ideological frame and understand yeah. their lives within ideology. Therefore, mm. you can't just have this reading that people uh, know their interests and act in them, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, that's right. I mean, this this kind of very interesting, like, the, I mean... You know, everyone from the Labour Party has been having a very normal one since the since the election. Of course, there's been no um, they've gone fucking been mad. no infighting. They've been no infighting. There's been no issues. They've they've just really gotten down to the business of, of beating the Tories again without any without any issues. But you know, back in reality now, of course, we 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 have seen you know that the Labour Party has gone absolutely mad, absolutely bonkers around this. Um, and one particular way in which that's in which that's come through is this idea that workers voted against their own interests. But as you were saying, ideology always clouds. It's not even like it clouds because that's probably a misreading. Like you you pointed out, I think it, it structures reality, right? Mm. Ideology makes the world in which we live. Mm. It's not just a not just a um, a mask that is put on top of us. It structures reality and it's meaningful and it takes physical form. In yeah. the form of these, in the form of the way the way that people live, right? Yeah. So, so it's, it's something you can't we can't just pretend. You know, that people voted against their interests as if they made a, a decision, or they were duped. Like mm. I think that that's you know a dangerously kind of idealistic. And, and also, it, it makes the other assumption that um, you know on the on the other side of things is that voting for the Labour Party is in people's interests. You know, yeah, yeah, and I think I think you know, like I kind of had an idea about how this episode would unfold, but I think we're going in a slightly different direction. And like one of my thinkings about the election is that, like, except for moments where there is a genuine social disruption and movement going on, Mm. ideology holds, right? (laughs) You know, yeah, like the the normality continues to be normal and people act in Mm. in those ways. But you know, one of the things that has been Look, okay, let's pull back back a second because I think there's a way of getting to this point. We, okay. again, were classically wrong. Oh, yeah. Right? That's, that's so, just normal. But I think we just can... Like, that's just... I think it's 100% we've been wrong about every election. Yeah. I'm proud of that now. That's my thing. <laughs> well, I'm starting to think, you know, that you know, people pointed out that maybe actually the determining factor in mm. elections is the opinion of living the dream. I think that's right. Yeah, yeah. If you really want to win an election, make sure you piss us off. Yeah, that's the, that's that's the rule now. But but why were we wrong, John? Like, why did we get it wrong? <sighs> well, everybody got it wrong, I guess. I mean, um, everyone. I mean, Labor campaigned like they were already in government. You know, there was that awful photo photo op that the front bench did. Oh, you know, like the the leader of the leader and deputy leader of the Senate and whatever, where they were like ready to govern. We're ready to govern, and they were all sitting around looking very debonair and ready to ready to step in. So everybody kind of assumed that this was going to happen. It would, you know, and the opinion polls had put Labour ahead, you know, um, and everybody just assumed, you know, we safely assumed. But I think in doing so, we weren't necessarily saying that that was going to mean anything too substantial. Um, in the context, I think we were going to probably see um, a, a, a continuation of pretty dodgy policies in a lot of ways so i don't think anybody was we weren't particularly excited about that about about any any potential outcome i think yeah see i i guess i like normally with the past elections i've thought we were wrong because we listened to the kind of pollsters and they're mm. wrong they just don't know anything like the experts are full of shit 
Yeah. And I mean, I've heard somewhere that, you know, if you actually looked closely at the opinion poll from the last few weeks, you did see the narrowing. And you did see that, but it's just that people didn't want to hear it. Like, it wasn't part of the narrative that was being spun. Yeah. It didn't feed into Morrison's thing either. Which, yeah. of course, that he decided that he was going to run as the outsider. He was going to run as the opposition. Sorry, my cats are playing with something. No, that's it's awesome. It's very noisy, and they uh, they love it. So uh, it's going to Living the that. Dream fans love background cats. Background cats are really... We should just have the entire show devoted to background cats. Okay. I, I think that's where we're heading. Yeah. But it's, it's like... Um, so I, I, I think there's other reasons why we were wrong, or at least I was wrong. So yep. the, one of my thinkings were that the same-sex plebiscite, in mm. my understanding, had delivered a kind of irreparable blow to the mm. right and had made them crazy. Yeah. Like it had exposed... Like there, there's like a claim that I think conservative politics rests on in Australia, and that mm-hmm. is that they represent... The opinions of a, of a silent majority. And I think yeah. we can talk about uh, Scott Morrison's resuscitation of that that idea and that the plebiscite victory mm. had blown that apart mm. and that the result of that had compelled the right to become even crazier. So yeah. we'd seen like a normalisation in the right, both in the Liberal Party and the coalition, but also in the right commentary of various kind of weird alt-right language like cultural Marxism and things like that. that mm. And that, and that this there was just this obvious gap between where the majority of people were and, um, and the... Mm. Um, and the coalition. And that didn't play out that way. And it'd be interesting, like, maybe I was wrong entirely. Like, my one thing I've been trying to think is that maybe if, um, I guess, kind of the left, for lack of a better term, hadn't been so um, kind of confused about the plebiscite victory, but it had, in fact, tried to mm. use it to kind of, like, argue for a form of social hege- hegemony about that, things would be different. Mm. But that's one reason why I think I was wrong. Like, the mm. second reason I think I was wrong is that while I start always thought, um, you know, kind of change the rules was crap, mm. like I, th- I thought it was actually genuinely speaking to something real, right? Which mm. was that there's been wage stagnation since 2013. And that whilst I mm. didn't think change the rules was going to deliver um, what, what it promised to deliver, I think um, in reality... Um, I, I guess what I thought was that that it, people were going to respond to it, mm. and I think what it actually did show is that the, the there's the the level of appeal um, amongst this in the social body for that kind of trade union social democratic arbitration politics is much smaller than I assumed it had been. Mm-hmm. You know yeah. that you know, and there's been like um. You know, a lot of commentary on the fact that if you look at, you know, what is it? If you look at those kind of areas in Sydney, which are seen as being kind of poorer, there was a small swing towards the Liberal Party. Mm-hmm. And yep. people saying, like, why is this? And it's like, well, perhaps, and again, I'm just doing that thing that I said before, which, you know, I don't like that kind of speculation because I've got no evidence to back this up. Mm. But if you think about, like, the last 20 years, so you did have, and, you know, people who listen to this show might be sick of me banging on it about this. You know, if you think about, like, the last 
20 years or so, you know, there has been, up until 2013, there was a real increase in household wealth. You know, one of the things I bang on about all the time is part of the secret of Australian neoliberalism is that the period of the transfer of wealth, you know, here's a period of time where capital does transfer the balance of wealth in its favour, but it's simultaneously experienced as um, an increase in household wealth. And more of us have some form of financial investment and speculative income. People who do own homes, you know, two-thirds of Australian households own a home, a third, roughly about a third of those paying off a mortgage are invested in like the houses um, of a rising value and that that actually has some kind of concrete reality to people's life. And that was more appealing to the kind of contemporary composition of the class in Australia based on historical experience, then some idea that what you needed was a return to arbitration and more involvement of the trade unions and the Labor Party in national level wage setting. So I think that's something I like totally got wrong. It's like the the way yeah, that the, the people have, as you said, or people have experienced wage rises of, or, or increased consumption and increased standard of living since the accord has not been through wage militancy. It's been through increases in credit. It's been through um, yeah, the, the increasing um, commercialization of, increasing financialization, sorry, of the economy. So it, it makes no sense. Yeah, it's totally true. And I think I, I was wrong about that, right? Like I think yeah. I, I think I had like a left understanding of um, mm. the idea that 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 the, the trade union argument was more mm. popular than it actually was. Yeah. So I guess the question is why did it not work in the same way that say the Urats at Work campaign did work, and did they have then more to do? Maybe the way that we've read the Urats at Work campaign needs to be reread then in light of maybe the failings of the Howard government. Yes, yeah, so like what do you think? That, well, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. I think that the Your Rights at Work campaign, you know, the way that the government, the way that how government targeted the unions in specific ways, the way that it rolled out specific types of work, of new types of work arrangements, like the Australian Workplace Agreement and whatnot, actually provided a really kind of tangible way of getting at what this was a you know a conservative a Tory attack on on working conditions well this campaign was more based around you know this ephemeral concept of you know the, the wages aren't going up mm. so what's the proof that the that you know there's no real there's nothing really tangible there to point to in the same way as you had with these sorts of um, agreements that you could really mobilize people around, you know, and Labor just was not able to have a convincing narrative that they were yeah. able to raise weight, that there was going to be, a, um, that they were going to lead to wage raise, wage rises, that they were going to be able to, to fix this problem that they died. Mm, that's a good point. And I think the other thing we've seen also, like being from Queensland too, mm. is that there is a kind of like sullen hostility in the class to, Mm. conservative parties with a reformist seal yeah you know that like this is what happened to the newman government you know like and that mm. was the same as the as the howard 2007 um government i guess the other question yeah. would be as well is is the role anti-politics plays right like mm. so you know like um we both read liz's article in overland mm-hmm. and 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 so it was really interesting and again that it pointed out like a continual decline in the proportion mm. of votes that's going to 
um, the major parties. But mm. I think the thing that is really interesting in the Australian example was, you know, the combination of One Nation and mm. Clive Palmer's um, United Australia Party seemed to be like almost entirely able to marshal the anti-politics sentiment against the Labor mm. Party. Like, it was almost like even though the Labor Party was in opposition... Um, they were the target of anti-political sentiment. That's what I was saying before. In that you know that that, that Labor's presentation of itself as the logical party of government, as you know, with all of these well thought through, well calibrated centrist policies that were going to fix everything. You know, it allowed, on the one hand, Morrison to present himself as kind of like this rough and ready, you know, underdog <clears throat> who was you know up against the world, mm. and on the other hand, then allowed the far right to... Well, I don't even know if you consider these parties to be on the far right or whether they just represent, you know, different business and political class interests. Well, I, I think I think One Nation is clearly a conservative nationalist party, right? Yeah. yeah. I, I, I think Palmer's United Australia Party is something more complicated. Mm. Like, and I'm my mind isn't made up. Is it? Is it a political party? Is it just a one-man swindling operation? Like, mm. like what is it? But so I, I, I thought they had the best advertising in the election, right? Well, that, no, they had lots of money that they ran yeah they had lots of money. <laughs> so so that's, 50, that's, yeah. fifty or sixty million dollars, a lot of it on YouTube. But one of the things I noticed, you know, so, you know, often when I'm at work, I'm, you know, got YouTube on and I was looking at kind of Clive Palmer ads. And so you'd get a lot of um, kind of, you know, paranoia about China. That was a big thing. But also they had a candidate from North Queensland. I, I think her name from memory is Yodi Batsy. And she's, I think, like an indigenous woman, but she's quite involved in the Pentecostal churches. And they had an ad of hers which was talking about the higher infant mortality rate for indigenous babies. And it was, I think, the only genuinely anti-racist political statement made during the election campaign. So it's really pretty amazing that the United mm. Australia Party were able to like mobilise both like racism and anti-racism. So I don't know what that shows, right? But but it was incredible that they were able to like get, I think, a large proportion of the anti-political vote and target it squarely at Labor, whether that was just a cynical ploy by Palmer to ensure future mining opportunities. Who fucking knows, right? But it's super mm. interesting. And the, it also is like the end of Liz's article does mm. point to the idea that anti-politics in Australia needs to be thought about the dynamic within relation to the dynamics of race in Australia. And I think that's pretty interesting. We'll have to see like where that goes. Yeah, no, that's right. Um no, it's interesting to think about that that question of race and, you know, anti-racism. And, yeah, I think that kind of ties in, in a way, to the way that racism has always functioned in Australia to a degree, is that there's always been a, a certain degree of kind of almost like paternalistic sort of mm. interest in the coloureds, quote-unquote, mm. whether they be in Australia or overseas. And, you know, that was often the way that the white Australian rhetoric was framed, particularly by the trade union movement, was that it was about protection. It wasn't yeah, about trying to. It wasn't saying these people are bad people who are going to come here and you know ruin our ruin our great country and our white pride or whatever. That wasn't mm. usually the way that it was framed. It was framed as like we want to maintain our working standards over here, and we also want to maintain their working standards over there. 
Yeah, how interesting. So I think, yeah, that, that cuts into some of the ways that racism maybe works. Mm. In my experience, I've just spending a lot of time reading, you know, trade union stuff. Yeah, I think I think also as well it, it has to do with the way that, um, like, in these in our current moment, like the, the notion of Australia is the referent that people have for some extent of collectivity, right? And until there's a kind of break with that, um, you know, by a genuine movement, that's part of the ideological firmament. So I guess like why we were wrong, I, I yeah, I thought that the kind of, that the social democratic ideology that or the soft social democratic ideology of the trade unions of the Labor Party was more popular than it actually was, and I think this election has proven that it isn't. Therefore, I guess the next stuff to talk about, John, is now what happens? What's the implications of the election for where radicals, friends and comrades are and the kind of stand, you know, the level of class forces in Australia? Yeah, well, I mean... I guess you can start by thinking what is the Morrison what what's the Morrison nearly re-elected Morrison government yeah, going good to point. look like? Yeah. I don't know. I mean we can only tell based on what they've already done, I well, guess, which is not an awful lot. Um, well this is this is a really interesting point, John, because like some like one of the benefits of actually having a delayed episode is that it's only in the last week that we've actually started to get an idea about what the shape of the Morrison government is looking at, looking like. Um, So, you know, Scott Morrison did a speech in Western Australia at I think one of the chambers of business, something like that, a couple of days ago, where he he kind of outlined like the basics of what he thinks his approach is. Um, What was really interesting is, you know, one of the key terms he resuscitated ideologically was this idea of the quiet Australians. Uh, Like, is that a Menzies term, John? Like, like, does that ring any bells? Mm, The quiet, no. I should have searched it today, but no, I didn't. I didn't. It's not really a Menzies term, which is more of the forgotten. Menzies is the forgotten people. Okay. So that's his framing. It was um, kind of a wartime World War Two framing, where he was kind of fighting the rise of collectivism during World War Two and trying to kind of say that you know there's this middle, the great middle class of Australia, you know, which mm. is divided between, you know, on the one hand, the, the working class, who are the union, who are, you know, who, who benefit from the union bureaucracy, and then the the ruling class, and there's this great middle class of salary earners and farmers and whomever else. Yeah. So I didn't think, yeah, so I, that was at a time, of course, in which those sorts of divisions were much more clear. Yeah, okay. In which there was a working class that was organized within the trade union movement. Yeah. And within the Communist Party and the Labour Party and whatever. You know, that that, that 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 was much that was a really meaningful kind of phrase then and was very successful for him. But now this quiet Australian rhetoric is, you know, in the way in the lovely kind of neoliberal, kind of post Cold War way. In a way similar to the way that to the way that Nixon employed, of course, his concept of the silent majority, mm. which is probably closer to the referent that um that Morrison's going for here. Um is is it's, it? It takes on a more cross class, or at least it tries to take on a more cross class basis. Yeah, I mean, to say there so, is people who are sick of the political class, or who are sick of red tape, or whatever. Yeah, yeah so, terminology. 
So it's an interesting speech. It starts by this reference to the quiet Australians. And I've seen other people kind of mention it. And look, he describes them, you know, as people who work, look after their family, run businesses and volunteer in communities. And mm. that their victory is that they know what's best for their future. Mm. And so they need more of their money back from the state, if that makes sense. And it's, you know, so it's really framed as in opposition to the Labor Party as seeing as a high tax kind of government. But then really, no, that's interesting itself. And then I guess the what's the content of it? So like his reading of where Australia is at in terms of capital accumulation in Australia is quite optimistic, where it's basically things are still going quite good. However, there's these kind of um, external turbulences you know, in the form of um, protectionism and there's might, things might be slowing down a little bit. I think this is to begin with already like an over- optimistic read if you're looking like what is happening to capital accumulation in australia at the moment and i think if you look at what's coming out of the reserve bank the nab business report and the like we're seeing a noticeable slowdown um in growth uh or you know there's various reporting about if you looked at say the retail section of the economy it's probably already in recession it's quite obvious Mm. that that kind of construction boom that's been powering accumulation based in the cities has probably in really obviously in a situation of over accumulation so there's been Mm. quite a lot of reportage in the media that there's no flats lying empty there's shop space that that's going spare so that's that's all definitely there so like you know he kind of downplays the impact of that then puts forward from memory i think it's three approaches so one uh cut taxation the second one infrastructure expenditure and the third one removing red tape so you know like what is this i guess as an approach for capital well i guess the idea of like um reducing taxation is an attempt to basically get help the state solve two problems one is to increase the level of profit and the amount of capital in their hands of capital but it's also the state really attempting to solve um the question of wage stagnation right yeah. so instead of getting increased wages you're going to get a tax cut and morrison was really clear about this a few days ago he was like everyone should make sure they spend their tax cut that was something yeah he was really 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 clear about and he's like you know this is for saving guys Yes, get, out there, which is, get out there and spend it. So it's like stimulus, but dare not speak its name. You know? oh, it, it totally is, right? And it, it'll be interesting to see this kind of contradiction that capitalist states are in since the crisis of mm. the need to put more money into stimulating capital accumulation, both but more money to capital and more money to demand, but mm. also to spend less money at the same time to manage debt and also to provide... Um, to provide the necessary social services to allow the social reproduction of capitalist society mm. if it can do that. So the tax cuts are really obviously an attempt to do that. And I guess their underlying rationale is the hope that this will spur accumulation and by spurring accumulation will increase um, taxable income. So that's definitely one thing. Um, the infrastructure, obviously, direct state intervention. And, and it'd be, you know, like... um. I haven't paid as much attention to infrastructure as I used to. Like around around 2014, mm. I paid a huge amount of attention to infrastructure, and there was really clearly a, a coordinated government, you know, plan by the Abbott Hockey government to sell state assets to fund infrastructure expenditure, and the the defeat of the Newman government kind of destroyed that as a national project. But it's still one of the things that New South Wales is pursuing. Mm. And the third 
point that reduction um, of red tape. We don't really know what that means yet. But I guess like one of the things that he cites is the, the time it takes for a project to take place. So really what he's speaking here to is something we could call the turnover time of capital. So if you think about, and for those following our home, this is volume two of Capital. Um, for If you think about the... We, we, we need a page range, Dave. Page range. <laughs> I don't have it on me. It's in the library. Um, <coughs> yeah, I do have a room that I call the library. It's also known as the spare room. Um, so like basically if you think you know you have x amount of money that you're taking to investment one of the things that capital is interested in is the time that it takes to put that through say production let's say it's production produce commodities go to the market have your returns come back and so you can invest again and you know capital is always driving to reduce the turnover time because the smaller the turnover time the more profit and the more accumulation you can get from a certain amount of capital so i think that's that's morrison's strategy but we've only really seen it now if that makes sense this was not not oh i've forgotten one crucial thing right and already flagging um that there will be um an an investigation into industrial relations. Laws. Yeah, that was that's another that's the thing. So like Morrison went to the election with zero policies. Uh, effectively, he was just running as like a kind of almost like a black sheep opposition sort of character against the against the the the, the Labor government's you know new big taxing, big spending policies. You know, so on the one hand, it's interesting to think of what you were saying about how. They are on the one hand ready to slash taxation and raise inf- and raise infrastructure, which is of course a contradiction, unless you're like an MMT theorist, which I'm sure that Morrison is not, you know. But he doesn't necessarily. But but I think that the the problem he he is that they've just basically after the Abbott hockey disaster, they just decided that they were going to take the brakes off. Yeah. In terms of and just decided that it doesn't matter what the budget situation is going to look like. We'll just hope that commodity prices will go up. You know, well, and, then, and that will solve the problem effectively. And it is it is the Trump approach. And I don't just say that to say, like, Trump equals bad. But yeah. you know, this is something that, you know, Morrison identifies clearly in, in his speech, you know, like tax cuts, um, infrastructure spending, removal of red tape. This is Trumpism, you know, as, as an – and, like – like I guess maybe on pay. Like I don't think like all these things will solve the problems, right? But it gives us an, a sense of what the approach will be, with some tacking towards industrial relations. But obviously they have to be really limited about that. Um, mm. You know, all the attacks are really focused on the CFMEU, and so I mm. guess our CFMMEU. Um, mm. So we will get, um, I think, you know, some kind of. Um, both attempt to get legislation through that allow deregistration of unions. And Christian Porter, who was in the news today for, I think, both getting an X-Wing tattooed on him and oh, also... Yeah, oh, dear Lord. And yeah. also um, for the announcing that there'll be a review into industrial relations, already pretty clearly said, like, yes, the CFMEU, CFMMEU will be a target of deregistration. Um, which you know is like it was like well that's pretty fucking brave so we'll, like we'll we'll yeah. see how, how that goes and also there's plans about the Veet sector which I should know more about but I have like it refers to the Joyce review but I just haven't read it so that's I think that's mm. one poll of this government like what I would suggest however is there's probably another poll around Peter Dutton mm. which is more like a national conservative security poll. Yeah, and I mean that. We'll have to see how that plays out. Of course, um, there's always 
that sort of um there's always there, there, there's already been talk of it going in that direction but yeah i mean as you said dutton is just dutton's only card to play is the is this kind of racist nationalist populist is this is that that card doesn't seem to have any meaningful economic policy that would be different i suppose mm. to no, morrison I... except for going down maybe a more trumpian road yeah perhaps but, i mean you know trump seemed to be you know Trump's Twitter feed is quite interesting because I mean I think he's having a meeting with Morrison in the next few days and decided to tweet out today all that stuff praising the Australian immigration, mm. which obviously has some tie into his current situation with the, the with the with the Mexico border. But you know, like there's, you know, Morrison will probably be able to use that as some sort of evidence of you know that he's Trump's preferred candidate or something in these sorts of um, sparring matches within the liberals themselves which i don't think have any real political life outside of the party no no but but i i I guess also will be like potentially war with iran will be the other um, engagement which is just Just a little so i so i think you know like i expect you know Mm. what we will see probably over the next couple of years the at least the term of the scott morrison government if he Mm. lasts the entire time will actually be the eruption of recession right yeah that the 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 i don't think it's controversial to say that the reading that, that the government has um of where capital accumulation in australia is not is not accurate but also the global forces do seem to be, you know, that um, we, we're still in this long-term crisis of over-accumulation. There's slowing down growth in China. There's worry about the size of the debt. We have this looming trade war. This is all going to impact. Will they keep to this plan? How much will it be able to be a counter, you know, counter tendencies against the emergence of recession or worse, or what else do we expect? But I, I would say I think they're a fairly weak government with this relatively loose strategy and two poles. I think that's what we're looking for at the Scott Morrison government, with I assume a whole bunch of pointless culture war bullshit thrown in. Yes. Yeah. No. That's 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 certainly going to be the case. But I guess the other thing we need to think about then is what is the shape of the opposition then we already touched totally. on that a little bit um, well, and it's, it's it's not good is it well i guess it depends who you're talking about like mm. um if if i think you're meaning like because i guess there's two things like we could talk about like the alp and the trade unions as the center-left mm. block and then we can talk about like the discussions amongst friends and comrades about yeah. how to relate to that yeah, like yeah. it seems pretty clear to me that when we're talking about the Labor Party and the trade unions, their response to this has been to shift to the right. Yeah, they've had an interestingly kind of like post twenty sixteen Democrat response to this election, where they've kind of decided that that they um that that the um that this result was the result of basically malfeasance. Mm. And you know the the oh, Palmer there was shifting. that too, wasn't there? That's right. So Palmer shifting the vote. All of it, shifting those labor votes from the heartlands into mm. you know the into the liberal coffers because people are dumb and don't know how to do how to vote cards or something. I don't know. Well, can't read, read. Can't. Will vote. Yeah. You know. So it's a very, it's very, very strange kind of argument. But you know, like, can you see it? Um, trotted out, I guess, in even in the monthly where they're like, you know, Labor won all the big states. They just lost, you know, Queensland and WA, the outlier states, the yeah. rogue states. 
You and, know, and that's what lost the election. You know? oh, fuck me, I don't know if I even want to talk about the Queensland no, chauvinism in, in this not. one. But but we did get a guest. Like I kind of purged this from my mind, but we did get that some of that kind of like Facebook stole the election, didn't we? Yeah. Oh yeah, we and, did. And look, I, I guess like I generally think that's probably bullshit. I don't think I know enough about you know the algorithms used and the like. I do mm. think ideology has a material essence. So I do think, you know, things like social media and advertising probably matter. And I also think there is a weird kind of like um, what we've called in the past like cosmic right um, that is out there in Facebook, a weird thing that links anti-vaccination, don't believe in climate change, plus wouldn't it be great to vote for Palmer? Like that does all um, exist out there. So that's certainly part of it. I guess the other thing that ha has happened, though, if we're going to talk about the Labor Party, is like, you know, um, it's Christina Keneally, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. You know, so like she's certainly now positioned as like a key Labor star. And what she tried to do, she's tried to outflank Dutton on the right, you know, to say that the problem with um, the the current migration policy is it's not tough enough on people who fly here. Right, like fucking hell, right? Um, hmm. and, and then, um, you know, like in terms of, you know, we're actually having these statements coming out at the moment from the from the Labor Party saying that, you know, we're rejecting the politics of envy and, you know, two hundred thousand dollars isn't a two hundred thousand dollar income income a year isn't the top end of town. Like the and so hmm. it's quite interesting. Like you know that that's being picked up in the media class as well. The victory of the quiet Australians versus the politics of envy, and so they just fucking collapse on that. And in terms of like trade unions, hmm. I think change the rules has just totally fucking disappeared. Right. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the union movement has just disappeared almost entirely. It hasn't been helped, of course, by the SEPCA scandal, the ongoing... Um, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure everyone's kind of vaguely familiar with yeah. SEPCA being, you know, a now bona fide misogynist. Yeah, so... As such. Yeah, so so this is... Look, I, without getting into the details too much, you know, a prominent mm. leader of the CFMMEU, um, two accusations have... There, like, the accusations against him have two elements. One relates to, I guess, domestic violence um, within yeah. his relationship, and the other is statements that were made about prominent anti-domestic violence um, campaigner Rosie Batty. And I think whatever, you know, the kind of rightful condemnations of that behaviour um, is also mixed with the way that it's been kind of fed into what seems to be a kind of internal night of long knives, right? Where these are the um, the claim the claims against him in relation to domestic violence and and his opinions are being kind of used by the Labor Party machinery to kind of fight some battle out, and I assume there was mm. probably an, an attempt to kind of triangulate Sally McManus around this too. I feel, I guess, like um, uncomfortable and and about talking about the sector case i think like mm. um um and I, I think what were we just talking about like one is because like, mm. i don't like on one hand i want to say you know the 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 kind of misogyny have a strong position against misogyny and domestic violence i also mm. don't really know what went on i i think there's 
um, you know, that the, there's, there's a statement that's, as you were saying just a moment ago when yeah. we were talking off air, you know, there's a statement being put out by his wife and that's mm. like, and I, I don't really know how to, how to feel about with this horrific and messy situation mm. and how it's then transposed into mm. um, a political debate, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and both an intersign war um, between the 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 ALP and trade unions itself, and then also by giving arm, you know, arms to the coalition too. But at the same, but at the same time, I don't just want to like you know have solidarity to all union brothers despite their crimes. Yeah, no, I mean it's, <clears throat> I mean, part of me is just like you know like we need to have like a hundred percent attitude on this, which is just you know like it's not good, especially for a union that is so male dominated. For that to be seemingly then just acceptable, you know, mm. and I don't know whether you know, like Sakharov, like, yeah, this is the, like his, like it's a like CFMEU does achieve really great things and does seem he does do really great things, but it is you know like it's a national organization and it's split across state lines quite a lot. Mm. I don't know about the Victorian situation enough. One of the questions that we got from the from our fans was about the split in the victorian labor movement i don't really know what that is so i think maybe that's something that maybe before we talk about this in more depth we should really figure out like i know that setka for instance split from the socialist left faction of the vic labor at least threatened to to form the industrial left to form the industrial left and and there's probably some acrimony there for instance you know and um and you know, like uh, things in Victoria are a bit different, of course, because they've got like a, a quite left-wing kind of state government, yeah. um, which comrades are trying to push in different directions, and that's a different yeah. discussion to have from the national level, you know. Yeah. So. And and you've got yeah. the kind. I guess you've got like the um, you know, the influence of the Communist Party that's and others right. in the left yeah. in the in the MUA. That's then I right, get the yeah. sense that there's considerable reactionaries in the mining or not reactionaries but kind of just normal yeah. laborist nationalists um yeah. in the you know the um the mining elements particularly in wa so how these fit together yeah. i don't know but this is like i think one of the other things that is really interesting is like a, a, there are these debates that go on in the labor movement at the high levels which as just you know a, a dues paying union member you have no fucking idea about yeah. And, and then, you know, you have the different unions issuing statements, lining up against each other, and it's really hard to work out what's going on. Like, what is the correct condemnation of unacceptable behaviour by a prominent union leader? And what is the cynical manipulation of this for um, faction-fighting point scoring and rebadging? Yeah, I guess in the end, like, what do we care about if it is being used for Labour Party point scoring? Like... What effect does that have on the on as we talk about the movement of you know the the the, the soft movement of the, of the working class is it yeah. more important that we take a position that just says you know in our movement we don't have space for misogyny and we don't have space for abuse yeah, probably. like that it's probably more important than like is this being cynically manipulated within the labor party it's like who gives a shit the labor party can cynically manipulate whatever the fuck they want you know like in a way mm. like this is probably something that it's better to take a big big stand on mm. rather than um yeah just just kind of write it off uh, not that you are i'm not saying you are writing it mm. off I'm, I'm just saying i think that it's um that it might be a principal issue Maybe but i, I guess i guess that's it i guess that's how it's enforced right 
Like, oh, that's you right. know, yeah, there, yeah. there would be a difference. There are between... other other people, other well known leftists who could fall foul of similar accusations. Oh, totally. Not that and, we and, and we should them. And, but, and, and we should have, you know, like, a, a, like, I guess that's the thing too, is. Like, yeah, like, you know, the 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 history of, of of domestic violence and sexual violence amongst you know radical movements the left the workers movement yep. is fucking appalling yeah right and you know am i like by even having this conversation like downplaying those mm. elements to it because i certainly don't want to do that um but but I also as well it's like how is this enforced? You know, is there a difference mm. between Albanese enforcing it by saying, "Oh, we'll expel sector," by or mm. members themselves, you know, arguing um, for yeah. for their for their removal yeah. and and what our orientation should be? That's right. I mean, even in like you know, in in the Greens, when there's been these kind of discussions in the past as well, it's like it's actually really once you start making like compliance mechanisms within organisations, it gets really messy and it mm. gets in a way where no one really gets a good solution that they actually want in, in a lot of ways once you start and you say that in the way that the legal system treats sexual mm. assault and domestic violence cases which is usually just to you know uh, the presumption of innocence and all these other sorts of things that, that yeah. and that make it really hard right so i don't but, know but whether... I, I guess your point your point is right that like from the perspective mm. of the movement yeah. like the right position to take is the opposition to to domestic violence um, yep. and misogyny in the movement. Yeah, you know right, the, the other con- the other concerns. Are se- yeah, with the other Jeremy concerns Buckingham are secondary. As well, and those are the, I think yeah. that's that's the the key position. I think we need to be kind of we need to have a universal position on that. Probably. Um, yeah, your your climate activism doesn't give you the ability to pace over your uh, abusive yeah. behaviour. That's right. Your leadership of a, of, a, of a good militant union also doesn't, you know, and. Should imagine if this had been the case in the seventies, when we had you know communist union leaders everywhere who would have been mm. you know pretty awful on all of these fronts, but who were valorized, you know. Mm. But this is the thing, you know. It's time. All right, I think cool. it's probably important to have that to have a good yeah a good position. And there's no change. I can't see any obvious change to the rules campaign that still exists in any form. There wasn't much kind of infrastructure built on the ground. But I know there are probably friends and comrades that are orientated towards the unions that like are probably contesting things in some ways. But but apart from that, it seems like the space has just been left empty. I mean, it was it, it was entirely electorally focused towards the end. I mean, Tim Lyons, um, you know, XACTU man and now kind of prominent Twitterati um, had a bit of a dig into it as well as, as, well as other uh, as other uh, ex trade union figures from the left, I guess, sort of saying that this was a waste of time that supporting labor like this, basically running all the resources into you know marginal seat campaigns that probably did more harm than good. Um, you know that 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 that's something that's certainly coming up now, and that there's. Hopefully, what it'll do is it'll allow for some more clear space for unions like the new United Workers Union, the amalgamation yeah. between United Voice and UW, National Union of Workers, my God, so many acronyms, um, to, you know, pursue more radical policies or for more left policies to get up for more, um, yeah. you know. Look, I, don't I, know. I, don't, I don't know, John, like, you know, like some mm. of, you know, so Amy Thomas's mm. um, election commentary 
and I think it was really interesting in the sense that it reflected a lot of what a lot of people I've seen on the you know friends and comrades have made which is you know like now that change the rules has failed now that the Labour Party has been defeated there is this space open within the trade unions for intervention and I guess my question is like how much of the trade unions exist that isn't completely ensconced in the ALP machine like I think you know Maybe that's me being a bit ultra-left and provocative here, but really how much of that space is there um, for, for this to happen? Like how, like how much can we even talk about the unions as a separate inst- set of institutions from the ALP proper? And obviously the part of this will be will be proved in action, but that's my kind of, you know, like... And people are trying really interesting things on the ground. I know, you know, some, um, like, you know... Um, I won't name any names at this period of time, but, you know, there, there are friends and comrades, people who even listen to this show that wow. are, are, are attempting different efforts in, in the wake. But I, I really don't know how much space there is in those institutions um, hmm. for a kind of autonomous anti-ALP poll within the trade unions. Yeah, I think there's probably going to be much more of the sort of infighting that we've seen, more of the sort of vindictiveness that's you know exploded on social media in particular um, of certain labor people and labor affiliated people just kind of having an exceedingly not normal time and just yeah. kind of going out and you know it's probably going to take months longer for them to get over this um, yeah and, and, and I think... then to, for our, like we haven't even spoken about you know this supposedly seismic shift of Albanese of the left yeah, totally. finally seizing the leadership for the first time really in and it's decades. Just shit. Oh yeah. But but also It shows think, a hollowing whatever yeah. was the socialist left in the ALP. And I, I guess as well, like my point isn't to like, you know, clutch at my pearls and go, Whatever mm. happened to the ALP? Because, you know, yeah. I don't think the ALP was ever good. No. Um, you know, and like as I've said before, I think, you know, the the primary political enemy of the movement to abolish capitalism is the ALP. Mm. Um, and then the coalition. Like in terms of politics, but but you know, like it does mean like in the lead up to change the rules, there was an articulation of like a radical strategy, which was okay. We're going to get this kind of soft, soft social democratic victory. We will mobilise to the left of it and mm. attempt to like you know push it and critique it from that position. That strategy is obviously over, right? Like, you know, yeah. like, and I think that was an attempt of some people to engage with a version of Australian Sanderism and a version of Australian Corbynist politics, trying to imagine it in these conditions, trying to read Sanders, Corbyn, AOC, etc., onto Sally McManus and the ACTU. Whether that was a correct analysis or not, I think that opportunity has closed. Now, I don't think that'll stop friends and comrades who are engaged in in electoral experimentation. Um, And, you know, like, I think, you know, the result for the South, you know, friends in South Brisbane Greens were were pretty good. Like, I think that's where, that's really where the Greens showed some growth was an attempt to engage in a radical social democratic politics. I don't know much about the Victorian socialist experience and I can't really comment Mm -hmm. on that. Um, it does seem to be large enough that it's causing some kind of debate amongst uh, socialist groups in in Victoria. But yeah, that 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 kind of strategic window that's closed. And so I think for people that had that kind of right to strike, change the rules orientation, I mm. can't see how that that can continue in the future. 
Yeah, no, I think that's right. And I mean, um, there's been some positive, you know, like you said, there were positive results, I think, for the Greens, I mean, um, particularly in Queensland, not only in South Brisbane, but in other seats, uh, where there was, um, a re- where, you know, the, the, the Greens increased vote statewide quite quite well so i don't know what what bearing that that really has except for that it's good to get radical policies out there and try to talk about them in interesting ways which is the same approach i have towards ideas like the green new deal um but basically yeah the 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 now i think you're right that that tactical window is sort of trying to force the alp to the left with some imagining of Sally McManus and the one good thing she did when she said that it's okay to break the law um, all of this imagination that we had about that has obviously fallen over and now it's time to think in new ways and I think it was really good that you know the the, the National Union of Workers um, put out a good statement pretty much the day after saying you know that we, we need to you know not which is not defeatist at all which said you know it's time that we actually you know that the climate crisis is real and it's time we started to try to take more power into our own hands and not just leave it to the government. At least that's how I read it. Maybe a bit mm. uh, more, more, more uh, positively. Maybe I was reading uh, reading radicalism into it, but um, it certainly was a was a nice thing to read. One of the only nice things to read in the in the in the outcome in the mm. in the wash up, I suppose. Yeah, interesting. And I think we'll do a future show about the Green New Deal because you've yeah. just been uh, famous amongst the youth. Um, yeah, for I love the some, youth. <laughs> some writing on, on the Green New Deal. Yeah. But it does show already again, like, um, you know, again, for people who are facing this really, you know, all of us, this really short window of when we need to take some kind of fundamental change, whether that's full communism or not, um, in terms of stopping climate apocalypse, mm. that certainly, again, there's a contraction of that that'll have an, an electoral possibility. So, like, if you think about... Now, we'll do more about the Green New Deal in the future. Yeah, yeah, if, yeah. if you were talking about the Green New Deal, like in the United States, if that was something you were into... Um, you would go, okay, I can see a kind of rising Sanders project to orientate that towards. In Australia, mm. that, that's just not existing in the moment, right? So no. you'd, you'd be saying, well, we need to look at an, ex- an external to parliamentary yeah. creation of a crisis, of a, of a social crisis <laughs> to, that, you know, that's like, to, we, to push things. Yeah, if we read like the stuff that Godfrey Merce has been, has been putting out, has been really interesting on that point. He's um, quite senior in what used to be NEW in Victoria. But, you know, like kind of for, for pushing beyond what just what's in, beyond just the federal parliament, whether that means pulling in state or local parliaments or, or pushing just within the union movement itself to start organising new forms of economic life. And to start organising in ways that are going to, yeah, that are, that are, going, to, that are going to work to solve yeah. the climate apocalypse. That's what excites me about yeah. ideas about the Green New Deal. It's not that the government's going to come in and save everyone, but that, you know, it'll allow for building of class power in ways that might involve the government or might not. Because techno, yeah. as far as I'm concerned, it's more a vehicle than anything. But we don't need to get into that now. Yeah, it, too, too, too better much to more talk about that. Um, hey, so we later. did get a bunch of questions. Did you collate those questions, John? I have my phone on me, so Ooh, it won't be too hard for me to find those questions. Um, so yeah, I, I think generally part of the thing, you know, like like a attention that we've been talking about for the last couple of years has been like, what is the relationship between between you know the real movement that abolishes the state of things and engagement with elections you know we've mm. just had an election and i think in terms of a particular approach there's a certain road that it, that is closed i i think the the project around say the south brisbane greens 
probably hasn't closed because you know you, you mm. met, talked about before about like um you know the, the increase in their vote i don't think it's just their demands are radical but that that's a political organization that within a, sti- a distinct geography has been able to um like express like the 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 experiences and aspirations of a certain fraction of the class if that makes sense you know young mm-hmm. people university educated with a certain cultural outlook you know a certain co- there's a, that's a certain composition and you know by composition i mean that combination of like how work is organized the ideas that are there the organizational forms like that's expressed in the in in the south mm-hmm. brisbane green so i, I there's a potential that will continue to grow poten- in yeah. into like the the um you know the council and state elections which the other side being i think if we're in queensland i think what we're looking at is like labor being wiped out um at the state election and of course by saying that i have just handed victory to the labor party yeah very good this is good this is what we should do i should say no definitely no communism yeah it's definitely not happening yeah all the money just disappeared from my wallet yeah that's right (laughs) (laughs) you single-handedly abolished the value yeah all right Okay, so um, questions. We've actually done done pretty well covering most, I think, of the questions on here. Um, how do we think, yeah, how like voters that are leaving Labour for One Nation. I don't know how many voters would have left Labour for One Nation. I think more voters would have left Labour for Clive Palmer, actually. Mm. And I, I think that that's probably a one-off sort of thing. I mean, we say that, but he's been around for bloody, seems like a decade now. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I don't think One Nation would have taken an awful lot of Labour voters. Um, for instance, like, I mean, if you just look like the it, only Labour seat in Queensland outside of the Metro Brisbane yeah. area is her old, basically her old electorate. Yeah. Is that, it, so they've won that back. Is that Oxley? That's, that Oxley? It, it's, it's, it's out that way. The Ipswich sort of won. Yeah. I don't know what it's called. But it's the only non-metro. <laughs> that's where, that's where I vote. The only non-metro Queensland electorate, basically, that Labor holds. Well, I think what would we would say is that there were, say, it's the Hunter seat, which is really interesting. That's right. right? Yeah. Where you had, like, yeah. the the tattooed coal miner who um, One mm. Nation received 20. And I don't really, like, again, I can't read into people's heads. Um, yeah. why that's happened and the other thing that's like really interesting when we talk about Ipswich and we've talked about this before is that you know one nation there is on one hand the party of Malcolm Roberts so total mm. fuckwit wingnut but it also is involved in like local struggles around um, the dumps and the incinerators and things like mm. that and also the other thing point that's really important is like the labor dominated Ipswich council are now all fucking yeah. going to jail yeah <laughs> right like no that's that's fucking <laughs> amazing actually yeah so you know if you have it's a, a the start of something new more labor people going to jail <laughs> but but also it's like you know who else is out there Mm. right like no, yeah right. perhaps yeah. you know yep yeah, sure i'm sure one nation mobilizes people's like um you know racial resentments and pauline is able to manipulate a certain cultural politics of presentation but also it fucking matters like if you're in ipswich mm. you know what the labor party is they're the mm. people who just fucking strip mine the town that's right yeah yeah no that's right i mean and actually like being willing to engage with and organize around like local issues is yeah. also kind of pretty important. Like that's actually like the incinerator is huge out there, right? Yeah. Like 
So, like, why is that not something that, say, you know, there hasn't been more sustained organizing? And this is the thing. You can't parachute people out either. No. So this is the other thing is, you know, those people are coming from those communities. Yeah. And and there's good good comrades in Ipswich who are involved in things, you know, like... um, You know, and they can only they were like you know you think about some of the things that um, like Fergal reports about like being out at Debing Creek, so that's you know attempt by an indigenous community to to a land rights struggle. You mm. know, people from one nation are there supporting mm. the indigenous struggle at Debing Creek, right? Mm. Put this that in, contradiction put Australian that into racism, your brain right? box, right? <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, that's a contradiction of Australian racism, right? Yeah, like this kind of you know exclusionist paternalism. Yeah. Yeah. Nuts. Oh, okay, give us yeah. more questions uh, from our fans. From the fans, yes. Minor parties, we already kind of talked about minor parties um, compared to previous. It was the biggest, like about 25% mm. of the vote went to minor parties, if we're counting, you know, the Greens and um, pretty much and everybody else. Though, um, you know, like that. that's... Like, I guess, like, there's been the collapse of the Xenophon the Xenophon group and the, the remnant of Centre Alliance went up for election, I think, this time and will probably yeah. get wiped out next time. Um, so, I mean, in a way, we've kind of seen a contraction. You know, Darren Hinch is gone, you know. Like, there's been a contraction in a way of the amount of small parties, which has been a result of changes that were made in the last parliament to make it harder mm. for small parties. So, um, and Corey Bernardi did vote poorly not... as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean... Um, the Australian Conservatives are going to dissolve themselves. Well, yeah, I mean, there's, that's the thing. I mean, they were always kind of like a ginger group. They were like the DLP of the mm. of the of the Liberal Party. Like, um, but yeah, so the, it's interesting that you know, despite the, the the way that those minor parties have largely dissolved, um, mm. at least in their electoral significance, that the vote has remained steady and actually increased. Do you know the, the history of the term ginger group? No. Apparently, that can be my to, apparently, it refers to putting a bit of ginger in a horse's bottom to get it to, like, you know, prance around more when you try to sell it. You ginger up a horse. That's disturbing. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for that. And thank you for letting our hundreds of listeners know about this appalling yeah, yeah. treatment of this appalling treatment of our horse friends. Yeah. But it, it changes how you think about ginger group as well. No, it doesn't. It's not good. No, definitely not using it anymore. <laughs> All right. Any more questions? And I learned that from Ryan. Ryan told me that. He's awful. Full of awful information. Um... Like the kale used to be known as war spinach. <laughs> no more. Do we need to talk? We, do we need to talk about class composition? More about class composition? And uh, how it's uh, changing? I mean... I, I think, it, look, uh, to the level... Like, I think it, you know... I'm pretty sure it's the Italian writer Sergio Bologna who makes a line that class composition is a key that opens all locks. Mm. And I, I think he's saying that as a criticism, right? That it's a certain form yeah. of, of Italian Marxism that I'm really into that thinks that this solves all political answers. Yeah. But I think it is crucial if we do it to understand that, you know, so mm. like really what it's saying for those people that are new to it, and there's a good conversation that I have with Keir Milburn in the episode with Keir Mil- mm. Milburn about this, is that, you know, the rela- the actual shape that the capital-labor relationship takes 
changes in the history of capitalism. And it changes because of the struggles, that the shape of the working class is constantly reposed. And this means, like, different politics are possible at different historical intervals. And so, you know, like, Leninism fits a particular time, the mass struggles of the 60s fit a particular time. And one of the challenges that we face is to say, well, what is the actual class composition today in the sense of how is the capital labor relationship constituted what what uh, organizational shapes does it take what ideas are produced and therefore what are the already insipid demands that can be taken up so like antonio negri who's key in this like he constantly reframes communist politics as really about like there are already existing demands out there in the class that people are struggling for and struggling over and Mm. you know what you do is kind of take those and advance those in a more radical form so i think it's in and then what you always fall down into you need this by you engage in workers inquiry you have to investigate these conditions i think Mm. what where it is important is that like this is not something that's generally engaged within the Australian left, but rather no. that there's a fixed model of what labour movement politics and organising looks like. And, you mm. know, increasingly there's other people who say, no, we want to talk about what's going on in a, in a gig economy, you know, mm. these kind of things. But, like, really, like, my point would be that the, the Change the Rules campaign, partly you could explain its failure by its inability to connect to the contemporary composition, where a politics of unionisation and arbitration does not speak to the majority of the working class in Australia in the way, as we mentioned before, that an ideology around kind of financial speculation Mm-hmm. speaks to them more that doesn't mean things are closed right like that doesn't no. mean like that people are in- inherently handed over to the right um it just means that like a radical politics today needs to actually connect with people's conditions and aspirations as as their starting point yeah no that's right i mean and and there's you know like uh, if anything it seems that there's now like it in terms of like you mentioned the gear economy already but that there are a lot that there's you know seemingly quite a lot of movement there in yeah. terms of in terms of strike activity there's quite a lot of movement um um in terms of groups like um the retail and fast food workers union yeah. um which is pushing a left-wing alternative to the sda so there are yeah. i think different there are interesting things out there that are happening in in those in those terms yeah um that, that we do need to be paying attention to. In a way, it's easier to do that now as well because, you know, you don't have to go to the factory gate to figure yeah. it out now. You can just go on twitter.com and and see lots of it all for yourself. Um, not that that's... And then the other thing, I guess, is climate action. Mm. Is climate... What do we do to talk about climate action? I guess that's part of the Green New Deal discussion, which, you know, like... But, um, you know, but it, an extinction rebellion and the, the seemingly dramatic rise of extinction rebellion, I'd say, in Australia, particularly since the election. Well, that that's really noticeable, right? Like, yes. if you think about, like, um, you know, the, ele- the election happens, the Labor Party shifts to the right and pulls yep. the knives out. You know, yep. the trade union movement goes goes quiet, takes a case yep. of domestic violence and then uses it as a faction fight. What explodes yep. is... Mm. Um, so, you know, struggle over, you know, every day there's some kind of spectacular action. Let's cut off some slices here, you know. Okay, so there's a real debate about who are Extinction uh, Rebellion, what is the nature of their politics, right? That mm. That's that's a real important and, and interesting debate. But 
I wouldn't let that cloud what we've seen almost it's thousands of people hurl right. themselves into it, you know, at, with mo- with momentum and, and emphasis behind it. That's really fucking exciting, right? Like it hasn't That's taken right. long. Yep. It hasn't taken long after the election for um, you know this new eruption to emerge. Yeah, and I mean, it, you know, it's tied in obviously to the to the school strikes that um that you know I was able to to go to and you know to see that energy from young people you know young people yeah. is fantastic <laughs> youth. you know youth they're all great yeah. really great people except they didn't vote enough or something well know. that's also another interesting point as well actually about the low level of voter participation yeah no that's right there's, there doesn't there doesn't seem to have been a market increase in the rate of youth voting at yeah. all despite the new enrollments which were people enrolling to vote for yeah. the plebiscite right that's right and this is the thing i wanted to say something between something about i'm not really sure about this it's something close to what kind of tad talks about in terms of you know the social you know there are struggles about the social life the breakthrough the idea of politics and there are those sorts of debates that still happen within the political sphere like at least what the plebiscite did is that it it, it, it was a it was it seemed to be a political decision that people could do, something that people could do that would have a concrete impact on someone else's life in a really easy and way. Yeah, they did. Yeah. They, and, 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 and to win and did that. So, but then, you know, to have the stale choice between, you know, Bill Shorten and Scott Morrison Jesus. posed to the election, like, that's not going to excite anyone. I mean, I, you know, like, if I was a different person, if I was young, if I was youth, I might think that I would rather cop the fine than, than, than yeah. participate in that, you know? Like, honestly. Yeah, interesting. But, uh, yeah, so maybe closing thoughts on that environment it, question. Is there any other questions that we've missed? Uh, I think we've covered most of them pretty well, I think. Have we? If, if you tweeted at us and we haven't answered your question, tweet at us again. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, maybe so, so I think... clarification, yes. So like, I guess maybe to go over and, and sum it up, you know, yeah. surprised at the result, right? Yeah. Um, you know, don't want to go into too many different hot takes but i think the one takeaway is the failure of change the rules the failure of the alp i think that means like a closure of a certain orientation that friends and comrades were were looking towards Mm -hmm. um i don't think it means the closure of all electoral approaches um and and i think it nor does it mean the closure of non-electoral approaches either and we should certainly you know talk to friends that are still in the anarchist space about how they're thinking about this. Mm. Um, but, you know, a, a government that is starting to articulate a strategy around declining capital accumulation, which I think is inadequate and will be taken over by those events. And I think that's probably something else as well, is that, you know, we probably need to start thinking about what our response to recession is going to be. Yeah, you know, I, I've started writing something for with sober senses, and I've got a vague plan that I'm going to start recording some small shows for the podcast, like my working notes to think about this. Mm. But we probably should be shifting our heads to say, like, you know, there's a chance in the next. Six, and I have predicted. No, I've said this years ago and have been wrong. But you know, it looks like we might be thinking about some form of recession hitting as the next in the foreseeable future. We should be thinking about what our orientation to that is. Um, and and how we're going to respond to those conditions, but at the same time we are seeing you know um, an emboldenment, an embiggening of um, you know uh, of these environmental struggles. 
Yeah, so I think that there's, you know, that's an interesting mixed bag there. I mean, and, and connecting the labor struggle and that environmental struggle mm. more concretely is something we'll even talk about in more detail yeah. uh, later. But I think it's it's vital, and I think that and it's it, only going to become more vital. And I guess it, it like, you know, I always read a bit of Elaine Badiou, mm. and, you know, he's someone who's really hostile to elections and, mm. you know, points out, you know, that before, you know, apparently quite recently before may 68 emerged the right in um in france won a convincing election and the Mm. movement was partly beaten by a convincing election for the right as well and you know Mm. one thing he talks about is like the the passive number of the vote and the active number of the movement are not equivalent Yeah, there is no quiet. The quiet Australians is a is a, is, is a myth in the end. Yeah. yeah, it's all about how we compose, how electoral majorities are composed. Yeah, and you know, if someone's willing to go out there with big ideas and to do something, then we can actually move people. We can get people out. To, yeah, for sure. To change the world. Oh, and we see and, it all the time. And, and not not, yeah. not not aimed at electoral, like you know, yeah. aimed at you know, like real the, life struggles. This is a difficult position for you know any of us that are aiming for a politics that that is orientated towards the idea of the you know the government of all by all you know like mm. but to start with movements are normally small minorities yeah that's right you know that they might be orientated towards everyone and the the impact of the active number which is always by definition smaller than the passive number of the vote can still be a more profound income in, in impact in in shifting the ideological ferment and yeah. and changing possibilities in that society Definitely. Cool. Definitely. Okay. Um, so, That's yeah, good. election over. Done. Anything Very else done. you want? Oh, we had to talk about the music we're going to go out on, John. Yeah, yeah. Well, we've got um, the uh, Greens candidate for Bowman or Bowman. I have no idea how to pronounce it. Um, out on the Bayside in Queensland, Emerald Moon, mm-hmm. fantastically named candidate who's become a Twitter celebrity of late, yep. of very late. Also composed a punk album whilst candidate, which is pretty impressive. With the a guillotine called, a ba- on the cover. The guillotine called, on the cover. Is it Class War or Class War? It's struggle? called Class War. It's called Class War. It's a, awesome. Look, it's, yeah, that's right. It's in, a little bit derivative of the British Class War group, but we'll, 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 we'll let that slide. Oh, Much like the guillotine but... slides down towards the head of the oppressor. Okay, yeah, that sounds good. So uh, we will finish on a track by the band Class War. All right, John. Um, let, hey, let's try to get some movement on um, getting this Green New Deal episode up yes. soon. Next week, Jeremy huh? and Tash. If you stay till the end of this podcast, you are called upon, <laughs> yeah. summoned. Well, potentially, by the time it takes me to edit things, we might have already recorded this. <laughs> the next one before this go. episode goes to air. All right, John. Okay. Cool. Thanks. Take it easy. Yeah. Thanks, All right. Mate. See you, mate. Bye. Thanks, everyone. Yes, it ain't yourself. Well, this is part of the struggle. This is part of the struggle.